This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Many, as we're heading into a June 7th election, uh, are, are questioning what is important to them as they head into the next election and whether any political party or what political party is representing their needs. Uh, an interesting study uh, just out, millennials are saying that real estate is going to be a top concern for them in the upcoming election. Uh, most of the time we are told that this isn't really what they're into, this isn't uh, uh, necessarily a focus for them, but a, a recent Nanos poll uh, released by the Ontario Real Estate Association says that it is a very important issue and millennials are upset that it is a dream that is seem seemingly unattainable for them. To talk more about all of this, Margie Carlson is with us, uh, Deputy Executive Director, Ontario Nonprofit Housing Association, and with us now. Margie, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Thanks for having me, Scott. Tell us about the Ontario Nonprofit Housing Association. So the Ontario Nonprofit Housing Association, we're a member organization that represents uh, community housing providers across the province of Ontario. We have everything from group homes that are very small organizations to very large organizations that provide rent-geared-to-income housing to people as well as market rent at the lower end of the spectrum. So how are you uh, reacting to this news that there's a possibility of opening up some of the Greenbelt lands for housing development? Well, I, I personally think that I'm not sure that's entirely what we need here. I think that there's no secret in the greater Toronto and Hamilton area that we have a very large proportion of extremely large uh, multi-story condo dwellings, and then we have a lot of scattered houses. And I think that um, we have an ongoing issue with transportation. So if we're opening up more greenbelt land, are we just not creating more problems for our transportation networks in the future? And do we need to be looking at different ways of doing development, looking at more what I would call the missing middle, uh, looking more at um, smaller, you know, six- to eight-story buildings and dealing with the fact that we have a lot of um, homeowners and uh, that are uh, living in scattered housing all over our area. So you talked about missing middle. What do we mm -hmm. need? What do we need? What is missing here? What's missing is rental housing. What's missing is affordable renting, rental housing. What's missing is rent geared to income housing for uh, the homeless and hard to house and people who need supportive housing. And I think also what we need is uh, a way to do development that isn't dependent on skyscrapers. We need six- to eight-story buildings, and we need them along transit corridors, and we need a way to uh, deal with the fact that we have an ongoing transportation, public transportation issue in, in our area. And uh, why have we got to where we are, do you think? Well, I think that people have been uh, siloed. We have not realized that there really is a triumvirate of issues happening, which is housing, transportation, and sustainability. And we have to work through all of those at the same time, and we can't deal with transportation without also dealing with housing. We can't deal with housing without also, also dealing with transportation. We create our own sustainability problems by not looking at things holistically. So what are millennials asking for, in your opinion? I think millennials are asking for access to markets um, like previous generations have had. They're looking for the ability to buy homes. Um, they want walkable neighborhoods. They want access to services. They want to be able to raise their families um, in neighborhoods that work. Everybody's looking for community. It's just a matter of figuring out how to provide that. 
What is the balance for the neighborhood that work? Because for neighborhoods that work, because it seems, Margie, we have, you know, it's a discussion that we're having on opposite ends of the extreme and there's no balance in the middle. Right. I, I think the thing is, is that there definitely are different people out there. And so I think that we need to make sure that we're providing the right products to different range of people. I think that um, we're all going to have to give up some ideas about what we think the way to raise our families are. Um, I think that we all know that there are people that want to stay downtown and raise their families downtown. And that means having um, playgrounds, that means having libraries and schools in downtown areas. And I think that there are people who do want to live outside of the downtown core, and we need to be able to provide that as well. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we need these winding streets um, and, you know, therefore having the need for cars everywhere, which then jam up all of our roads. Why can't we why can't we build these sustainable communities outside of our larger centers that have all of these amenities? Why, why you know even when we're having the discussions about expanding the the green belt whether you know that's the answer or not I don't know. Um, you know it, it seems that it, it's all about bringing people to where they already are. What about what what about creating the perfect town, the perfect city? with its transportation hubs and, and even industry outside of the main hub. It seems we're trying to cram everybody within 10 miles of the lakeshore <laughs> or, the, or, or, the, or, or the boundary between the United yeah. States and whatever. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, we do have examples of communities like that. And then our challenge becomes is people want to go between A and B. And then we end up with these huge, you know, their, their jobs are located elsewhere from where they're living. And we need to do a better job of locating our jobs and our people in the same place. And, uh, and right now we're not doing a good job of it. And I think that we need to be a lot more holistic in how we, how we look at things. So, uh, what, so to the millennial that wants, uh, you know, and again, I'm not talking about a sprawling 3,000 or 4,000 foot mansion, but what if the, you know, the young couple that, that wants to have a 2,000 square foot home and, and raise their family with a yard, is, is, that, is that out of the question now? I don't know that it's out of the question. I, I think that is 2,000 too much? You know, I think, um, is 1,500 okay? I don't know. You know. I think if you're in Europe, it's one discussion, but I think it's another yep. discussion in Canada. Yeah, it, it is another discussion. A lot of us go to Europe and we see the way people live, and we like it. We like the fact that there's not all the, the, the towers. We like the fact that there are four- and five-story buildings and that families live in them, and, and it's not a big deal to get to work. And I think that's what we're all looking for. And, um, so how do you, know, you get that? How do you get that efficiency of what the Europeans are doing? But again, let's be honest; they're doing it because they have to. Uh, yes. When when you're in a country the size of Canada, is there not a better way? Is there not a hybrid mix between the two? In other words, we don't need to be stacked up like they are in in Europe, but we certainly don't need those sprawling neighborhoods, perhaps that you're talking about. So, uh, again, do we get too stuck on the fringes to have that important middle discussion? I, I think we do. I think we need to have the middle conversation because I think a lot of people would be looking for, for it. We do have examples of this here already. We just don't have enough of them. 
Who is doing this right? Is there anyone we can point to in North America? And again, European models are tough. Is there anybody in North America we can point to that, you know, here's a smart community, here's a sustainable community, here's how you expand urban centers? Because at the end of the day, a lot of urban centers do not have the room to expand, whether it's geographics, Vancouver's a great example of that. But Southern Ontario's not. So how do we find the balance? I think we have to get better at talking to each other. I have to. I think we also can't be so siloed. I'm trying to think of an example. Um, maybe Pan Am Village in in Toronto, where uh, the attempt was to create a neighborhood that was based on on what happens in Europe. And um, you know, again, we're not talking huge towers. We're talking an attempt to create a neighborhood with park space where people felt that they wanted to live in a community. So how do we get there? How do we, how do we bridge this gap? How do we, you know, what, what, what's the future for millennials? Where can they, how do they raise their families? This is a really good question. Especially you know, if they um, don't want to raise a family in, in downtown. And, and some do, but some don't. Right. I think, I think we just have to get better at planning. We also have to get better at talking to each other. And I think that, you know, municipalities have a really strong role to play. Um, they're the ones that are in charge of, of the plans, the official plans and where development happens. I think we could look at things like um, rental-only areas. We don't do that right now. People are worried about ghettoization. But in, in a, an economy where there's not very much rental being built compared to what we need, I think that's really concerning. I mean, typically what happens is when you come out of university or you come out of a high school, you're trying to save for a down payment, but how do you do that when there's no rental housing and what you find is so expensive that you're never going to be able to uh, save for a down payment? Um, an analysis by Generation Squeeze in 2017 showed it would take 15 years of full-time work for a typical young Ontarian to save a 20% down payment on an average-priced home. In, last, in our past generations, it was only five years, mm. right? So, you know, um, where, where are the options for them? I think that we, we don't have enough rental, I, and I don't think we have enough affordable rental. That's where people normally save for, for down payment. It seemed that we stopped, uh, you know, at one time there, was, there were rental units to rent. It seems that that's gone now. It seems that that has disappeared for condos and then people who privately rent them out or, or, or what have you. Uh, what do we do? How can we stimulate more rental properties? Well, I think and how, do we get to, how do we get developers interested in that? Well, I think, I think the thing is the model has to work. I think, um, you know, there's lots of different ways to do that. I think some municipalities are doing what they can. Uh, City of Toronto is a really great example where they're already giving uh, waivers on development charges for organizations that are trying to build affordable rental. There are, you know, we have the National Housing Strategy which is the you know, first time in 20, 25 years that the federal government has really been coming to the table with investments that are going to be available. We have some new organizations that have sprung up, um, an interest on the part of not only the real estate investment trusts, but also pension funds are looking to get into uh, building rental and affordable rental. It just the mechanics have to be right for it. And where's the land? I think this is a question. Where is the land that everybody uh, is looking for? There used to be a time in the past when the federal government had a role in land assemblies. 
I'm, I can't think of a time when they, you know, recent memory when they were doing a land assembly. And that's how a lot of, you know, big What What do you mean? Yeah, sorry, can you explain that to us? What do you mean by land assembly? So a land assembly, where, where basically what they're doing is they're cobbling together privately owned parcels of land that they then take an interest in. Mm-hmm. And um, they, we used to have those kinds of mechanisms. I haven't seen that type of thing in my entire career. I just know that from the history there were um, programs like that, that that the federal government was participating in. Um, you know, the, the provincial government has Infrastructure Ontario, which has been taking a much stronger role in doing public-private partnerships. I think that Infrastructure Ontario is something that, um, as a potential vehicle for provincial involvement in development of rental or affordable rental. So when you say, where is the land, what does that mean? Does that mean that the land isn't suitable for this, it's not zoned as that, we can't free it up for that, or the land is not physically available? Yeah, I think all of those things, you know. Because or, that's or what that, that's how yeah. we got to the Greenbelt discussion, whereas, yeah. you know, again, we were, we were just talking to Environment Hamilton, and they are saying, you know, there's tons of land here that hasn't been developed yet. And, and, and yeah. you know, some say it, there is, some say there isn't. So I don't know which one yeah. is it. So we have, you know, uh, you know I'm thinking Hamilton. You've, you've got parking lots, right? Yeah. Okay, so yeah. do we need the parking lot? Yeah. And you put a building, yeah, a parking lot yeah. under it. You know, that, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about those one-story strip malls that we see all over yeah. Ontario. Yeah. And can't we be u- using that line, that land a little bit better than, than what we have? Yeah, don't get me started on the big box store. It'll, uh, it'll get ugly <laughs> at Margie. So wh- when are we going to start having these discussions? I mean, will, will, will something like chatter of, of opening up the green belt spawn these sorts of discussions? I hope so. I hope so. And I, I, I credit at least uh, the PCs for having raised the issue, because at least it'll start the debate. Because, of course, there are a lot of people that would be vehemently opposed to it. And, um, you know, I'm not so sure I'm in, I'm in favor of it either, but if it starts a conversation where we need to have Metrolinks talking to Infrastructure Ontario or Metrolinks talking to planning departments, I think it's not, you know, Metrolinks is a, a great example where, you know, we have this transportation agency that is capable of providing the impetus for the creation of transit-oriented development. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, why so in other words, the transit system should be in place before the development's in place. Potentially, yeah. You know, if we're, and you know, that's, I think, where we're stuck. We're stuck between the old model and the new model in the sense that, you know, we're, we're thriving back to these bigger cities, which is great, and, and they're being infilled. Uh, but at the end of the day, how many people can you keep putting in this congested area? At what point do we, you know, start building these satellite smart cities with transportation to and fro? Somebody's going to have to take the... Uh uh, you know, going to have to take a leap into the future because I think we're going to need it, right? I mean, I, look, in my lifetime, Hamilton has become basically uh, almost uh, a suburb of Toronto, right? And that's mm-hmm. not necessarily ideal for anybody, right? So, you know, I know there's a lot of interest in Hamilton. Um, and there's a lot of development happening in, in Hamilton uh, after a long period of nothing happening, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe that's what we're looking at. Margie Carlson has been with us, Deputy Executive Director, Ontario Nonprofit Housing Association. Margie, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Okay, thank you very much. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We've talked an awful lot about Donald Trump over uh, the last several months uh, on this show and um, watch this man create more problems for himself than anyone else or the media or the opposition has. 
uh, just by things that he has said. Uh, but again, uh, and I've I've spoke very critical about the president, but I'm I'm very I'm very aware of why he got elected, and I, I still think a lot of opposition parties are unaware of exactly how he got elected, and and rather than understanding that. They're pointing to a person's flaws, which, of course, there are many. And um, and I think that's just missing the point, because, you know, at the end of the day, you can cut up your opposition all you want, but the people still would rather have them than your person. That's really what it comes down to. And I, I think a lot of opposition parties aren't asking why. And and whether you want to categorize Trump as establishment or anti-establishment or a politician or a businessman or what, I think he was sent to the White House for one purpose, and that was to disrupt. Uh, With that comes positive, with that comes negative. I guess some of the positive is what we're seeing in North and South Korea. I don't, you don't need me to name the negative. Um... So where do we go from here? Where, 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 where do you take this discussion uh, about this man? Well, all of a sudden we're talking Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, and we've, again, had discussions on this show of late on how this whole thing has changed. This whole discussion has changed from the size of buttons and fire and fury to now meetings and possibly peace and denuclear, denuclearization which is incredible when you think about it. Uh, let's bring in Ryan Hur- uh, Hurl, Assistant Professor, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto, uh, and, of course, uh, ask him whether he feels that Donald Trump should get the Nobel Peace Prize. Ryan Hurl is with us now. Ryan, thank you for taking the time. We appreciate this. Uh, no problem at all. Are you surprised we're having this discussion when it wasn't that long ago we were talking about fire and fury? Uh, it's a, more than a little bit surprising. I, I think more so than surprising, it's premature. It's like saying Austin Matthews should be in discussion for MVP after he scores four goals in the second game of the season or something, something mm. to that effect. Uh, this is very, very early, and we're not, uh, we're not yet at, we haven't yet reached the stage where every president gets a Nobel Peace Prize. So I think that much remains, much remains to be seen. Um, you only have to look back at sort of previous iterations of these kinds of discussions with North Korea, previous agreements, previous talks to see that one can think that you've accomplished a great deal. You can think you can move on to the next stage to some kind of reconciliation, some kind of you know, integration of North Korea into the world community, only to have things fall apart. Um, this it really is in many ways a rogue regime. And there are some positive signs, of course, but we're not yet in... Uh, Nobel Peace Prize territory, I don't think. You know, Ryan, you bring up a valid point because, again, fire and fury, then, you know, the big announcement in the last day or so about uh, complete denuclearization, and now we're talking about a peace prize, and neither (laughs) side has really sat, well, as far as the presidents, haven't sat down to meet yet. Uh, Exactly. And and every so often when it does seem that it may happen, uh, President Trump will throw something out and say, if I don't like it, I'm going to walk. So, well, I would actually, sorry, go finish. No, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, well, in some ways, that's the attitude I would like Trump to have. I don't want it getting into his head that I'm just a little bit away from getting the Nobel Peace Prize. I absolutely have to have some kind of an agreement. That's when you get manipulated. So do you right? think the, no- the Nobel Peace Prize will, will play with his head and will change his, his direction? I think that's a dangerous possibility. I, 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 
hope that that's not the case. You have to go into a meeting of this kind with North Korea, as, as far as I understand, and as, as experts on the subject really do understand it, experts in North Korea, you have to be willing to walk away. You have to say, what are the very concrete steps that we can see uh, in terms of demilitarizing uh, the zone between North Korea and South Korea, in terms of moving away artillery so they're no longer targeting Seoul? You have to have very, very concrete commitments and way of ins- ways of ensuring that they'll be met, and not just a lot of aspirational statements. Words don't mean a lot to North Korea, right? Their goal, they have a very simple strategy, get a lot of nice talk and get commitments from the West and the rest of the world on reducing sanctions, and then find ways to avoid your own commitments. That's the very simple game that they're engaged in, yeah. right? So like, Trump does, really has to go into the meeting saying, if, that, if they're still playing that game, you just walk away, and oh well, you don't get the Nobel Peace Prize this year. He absolutely has to have that attitude. How much credit do we give Donald Trump for this? Do, is it his maximum pressure uh, approach that, that's worked here? That's so very difficult to say, right? You, it's easy to say a story that either, you know, if, if things had gone south, with, if there was conflict between North Korea and South Korea right now, people would be telling a story about how Trump's belligerence and talks about Rocket Man and whatnot had caused it. Right. Um, but obviously a lot of complicated things are involved. Similarly, you could also tell a story that his uh, aggressiveness has brought North Korea to the table, and that might be part of it. I still think it's too soon to tell that kind of story. I do think it's, it is possible in some circumstances that um, a, a degree of belligerence, a degree of a sense that you're dealing with someone, as Trump himself said, you know, he has to worry about dealing with a madman, and that's me. <laughs> mm. uh, I think a degree of that uh, belligerence can be useful in this kind of circumstance, but we just don't know the full story yet. It's only one part of a very complex puzzle, and a lot of it has to do probably with the internal politics of North Korea. How is, John, how is China viewing Donald Trump's approach, especially now? I'm not all that familiar with uh, China. I'm not a Chinese expert, but my, my general sense is that... Um, I think my general sense is that China does not want North Korea to turn into a disaster. And I think that... Um, also, in terms on the trade issue, I think that uh, Chinese, the Chinese probably have some respect for Trump's willingness to play hardball with them on those issues. These things are incredibly complex, of course, but um, I think that the, you know the Chinese. Just to think about general American Chinese relationships, you know, the Chinese are not you know pure free traders, right? They are not entering into trade relationships yeah. with the notion that we're just going to have free trade and everything's going to be fair and equal. Yeah. No, that's not the, that's not the way it works. And now they see that they have someone who's approaching it, uh, approaching trade uh, with a kind of critical eye. And sometimes he's very wrong about things, uh, but sometimes he's right. And on some aspects of trade relationship with China, he is he is correct. So I think. Probably China has some degree of respect for uh, Trump's willingness to change direction on some issues here, um, but they probably also feel that he's uh, someone who lacks a full understanding of the, you know, the broader scope. From a political standpoint, if you're the opposition here, and, and you, you, I mean, we got the Mueller investigation, there's so many things going on here at any given time. Mm. All of a sudden, this, and it, it, it's, it's a as he would put it, a win. It would be a positive yep. if it happened. How do we process this? I mean, are people just shaking their heads saying Donald Trump and Nobel Peace Prize in the same sentence? 
Um, I think this is an issue where you you really are seeing you know politics ending at the water's edge. I mean, no one's upset. No one's going to be upset if this actually leads in a productive direction. So I think that on the Korea issue, you are seeing some people making uh, relatively straightforward statements, Democrats that is, about how, well, we did not really think this was going to happen. We did not expect uh, Trump's approach to yield these kinds of benefits, but we're happy that it's happening. Let's move in this direction. But of course, at the same time, the story is not over yet. When will we know more? When will we know if this is a success or not? I mean, there's lots of chatter uh, of a meeting between Trump and Kim Jong-un in the next few months, next couple of months. When will we know if this is a success or not? Well, you have to know, well, the meeting has to occur, and then you have to see the details of the meeting. And I would say it is a failure if there are not very specific concessions uh, extracted from the North Koreans and with very very concrete ways of, of implementing them. And wouldn't everybody know those conditions going in? Would everybody not know, okay, here's what I want, here's what you want? Wouldn't you have a rough idea before you sit down? Yeah, and we'll have to see exactly what the what you know what the Trump administration comes up with. But I would say, uh, you know, ch- changes on the on the North and South Korean border, things that are relatively easy uh, to oversee, um, I think would be, uh, you know, a, a very good sign. Uh, in addition to obviously uh, some kind of ins- inspection regime, something very serious, right? Something you can't just uh, recapitulate the earlier agreements that led nowhere. Uh, uh, the president of South Korea said President Trump should win the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, that being said, what about the the leaders of both both North and South Korea? Are they perhaps more deserving than the president of the United States? Uh, I think that's possible as well. I mean, perhaps there'll have to be a prize for all of them if uh, yeah. if a uh, if 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 some genuine change uh, change occurs. Uh, as I said, I'm still I'm still very skeptical, if only because we've been here before. Um, so, but yes, it does take. It's not it's not Trump alone here. It has to require a willingness to cooperate on the part of both North and South Korea, and. I, should, I could also point out that there can be a downside for this on the for the, on the case of the people of of North Korea, depending on the terms of of any kind of agreement. I mean, yes, you might still have a reduction in overall levels of tension, but that could still leave a very you know tyrannical regime in place in North Korea, um, a, perhaps a regime that would not no longer face the similar kinds of pressures from uh, uh, from sanctions and so on. So I think that there can be even even on the the question about peace, it's always peace on what terms, right? And I think ultimately, uh, it would be best for the United States and for the world for there to be some kind of regime change in North Korea, not something that necessarily comes from any kind of intervention. Um, but we have to understand that there can be a downside to uh, dealing with North Korea as well. How do you explain the chatter of complete denuclearization when, and why would Kim Jong-un even go there when he spent so much time to get to, you know, it's taken so much time and energy to get where he is now? Why would he just, you know, even at this stage of the game, be so quick to say a phrase like that? Um, Perhaps because he's assuming that there might be different interpretations of what denuclearization means. Is that what it is? Different Uh, definition? uh, I think that could be, I think that could be part of it. Um, it could be uh, the assumption that he'll be able to uh, keep conducting uh, nuclear research and weapons testing um, even after some kind of agreement. Um, it may be the case, and here this is just pure speculation, um, it may be the case that 
um, people in North Korea and the leadership are looking at China and saying, well, look, we can have a transition to a more market-oriented economy, a freer economy, one that's integrated into the world without necessarily giving up power. And it doesn't have to be destabilizing, right? You don't necessarily have to, you know, you don't have to go the, the, the road of the Soviet Union where you have a more uh, very difficult transition to a freer society. So I think that there could be there could be an element of that. I think probably most North Korea specialists would would disagree with me on that because I think they would say that um, North Korea is just such a very very different society um, that the notion of moving towards normalization is not something that's really on the radar. All right, let's talk about the Mueller investigation. Uh, right. His team gives, uh, I guess, almost four dozen questions to Trump's lawyers. Part of the probe. Does this mean that Trump will be testifying? I think that's a little bit uncertain still, um, but it would strike. I mean, the reason I say that is that m- many of the questions do seem to be relatively open-ended. There's basically th- three or four different sections, four sections, let's say. Uh, three of those sections deals with various of Trump's actions related to uh, Michael Flynn and former FBI Director James Comey and Attorney General Jeff Sessions. And a lot of those questions are very general in the sense they deal with Trump's motivations. What he, was he thinking when he made a decision on a certain date? What was he thinking about when he talked with James Comey about loyalty? Um, so it seems there that Mueller is trying to get at Trump's motivations, his state of mind during the early stage of the investigation. And it might be very easy, given the nature of those open-ended questions, uh, for Trump to end up someplace where he doesn't want to be, to make statements that he, he doesn't necessarily want to make. Um, the final set of statements, uh, the final section of those questions deal with a lot of just factual questions about connections between Trump and Russia, connections between Trump and, uh, during, and Russia during the campaign. And in some ways, I think those questions are, are more serious, dealing with uh, some of Trump's uh, business relationships with, uh, with, with Russia prior to the 2016 campaign the amount of knowledge that uh, Trump had about possible coordination between his campaign and Russia. Uh, those kinds of questions as well, uh, Trump will have to get his story straight. Um, I think that it's, it's been still potentially very dangerous, and there's a reason that Trump's lawyers did not necessarily want him having this particular discussion with Mueller. Your thought on the leak of these questions, should we be knowing this? How does this happen? What does, this, does it change the discussion at all? Uh, I really don't think so. Uh, I personally am against sort of the leakiness of American politics. It just seems rather strange, but we're Canadians, I guess. Maybe it's, it's not as, that's uh, it, part of American politics. I mean, most of the questions is basically just like an overview of the, the last you know, year and a half, uh, sort of a step-by-step set of questions. You know, what was Trump thinking uh, after he became aware of problems related to Michael Flynn? What was he thinking when he had a, meet, a dinner meeting with James Comey? Uh, I don't necessarily see how the leak of the question changes anything. Um, I think it merely just shows you, it's just almost like a re- reiteration of, of information of all the questions that were already on all of our minds. I almost feel as if almost anyone who's been paying a little bit of attention could, cu- could have mm. come up with sort of this, this list of questions, right? It's, Does it's, Donald it's, Trump have anything to be afraid of? Can he wade into this and wade right back out as if nothing ever happened? Well... 
if he's innocent, he has nothing to be afraid of. Yeah, I guess right? it comes down to that, doesn't it? As I look, I don't think he's going. To, I mean, I look at these. I look at the question. And I think back over the Trump investigation, say particularly the way in which Trump handled the firing of James Comey. Mm. It's consistent with two possible stories. On the one hand, if Trump. Uh, either personally or believed that his campaign had no real connections or any kind of connections with colluding with the Russian government, then his actions in regards to Comey are totally consistent with that. Because it's the actions of someone who said these charges are trumped up, uh, that the allegations in the Steele dossier are insane, uh, we were not working with the Russian government to get elected, right? And then that's exact, his, his actions would have been the same. On the other hand, unfortunately, uh, his actions, if he's trying to conceal something, it could have happened the same way. This is what it comes down to. We are in a state of uncertainty, and the only person who has much less uncertainty, I think, is Robert Mueller. Ryan Hurl has been with us, Assistant Professor, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto. Ryan, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks. Anytime. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The Trudeau government proposing uh, changes to how we have elections uh, in this country. There was lots of chatter prior to the election. Matter of fact, during the victory speech, I believe the prime minister said this is the first, the last time we are going to use the first past the post system. That sort of went nowhere, but still some changes. To talk more about all of this, Duff Conacher is with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch, adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa, and is with us now. Duff, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. My pleasure. Why is this being introduced now? Is this to sort of make it look like something's being done after saying that there wasn't really going to be any changes to our electoral process? No, the Liberals actually promised uh, not just the clear uh, promise to change the voting system, which they clearly broke, but also other changes to the uh, election system in, in the 2015 election. So we expected this bill to come, um, and actually it incorporates one, a bill that was introduced in November 2016 that they didn't move forward at all for some reason for the past almost year and a half. So those uh, changes have been uh, folded into this new bill, and um, we'll see whether they get it through the House and the Senate in time for Elections Canada to adjust everything for the next election. So what are the changes? How will this affect how we vote? Well, um, mainly uh, the big changes are uh, the ID that's required to vote and allowing people who are expats to vote. Those are uh, the voter ID changes were things that the Conservatives had made more restrictive and the Liberals are removing those most of those restrictions how many people would this involve let's just talk about the id issue uh obviously security is a big issue how big is this as far as the change from one government to another uh, you know i don't think it's that big a change really you could use any one of 29 pieces of id in the last election and so and you could also have someone vouch for you so um, they're expanding the vouching to include that you live in the riding and your ID, but you have to su- sign an oath. Uh, uh, one voter who's registered in the riding can only vouch for one other voter, and they have to sign an oath uh, when doing so and provide all their ID when doing so. So I don't think there was that much of a barrier. Some people say there was a huge barrier and that we were going to see a huge drop in voter turnout in the last election, and in fact it went up by 8%. So I don't think it's that big a deal, actually. Um, the the bigger deal is that they're not really doing anything to stop uh, big money influence. There's been a claim that they're restricting things, but they're actually increasing 
the spending limits during elections for interest groups, uh, especially wealthy ones, in terms of the amount that they can spend on advertising and other ways of influencing the election. Uh, they're more than doubling that limit. And uh, also um, not doing a couple of things that are really needed, especially requiring disclosure of uh, ads that those interest groups or individuals might run on social media. And without disclosure to the election watchdog, the election watchdog can't ensure those ads are true because it's illegal to do a false ad and also that they don't uh, violate the spending limits. So they're not doing enough to require Facebook and the other social media companies to uh, stop secret fake online election ads. Is this how we're getting around third-party advertising? How much uh, is centered around third-party advertising in this? Uh, quite a bit, and it's extending the limits also for political parties in terms of what can be spent during the uh, two months before the election campaign begins. So they're putting in limits in that period, um, but very high limits, so they're not really that meaningful. You know, as an interest group, you'd be allowed to spend a million dollars in advertising in those two months. There's very, I, I can't even think of a, an example since 1988 when the big free trade election and the corporation spent millions. Since then, I don't think there's an interest group that has spent even close to a million dollars in the pre-election period, let alone during the election campaign period. So that's not really limiting or stopping big money. And then, as I mentioned, they're more than doubling the limit in terms of what's allowed to be spent during the election campaign period. So that's just going to allow wealthy interests to have even more say in the elections. And they're not doing anything to lower the donation limit, which is much higher than an average person can afford. You have all the p big parties essentially relying on about 5% of their donors for, for uh, about uh, 30 to 40% of the money they get in. And those people have more influence because the parties rely on them for so much of the money that they receive. So we have an undemocratic political finance system still at the federal level, and this bill is not really doing much to, uh, to stop uh, the influence that's unethical and undemocratic of, of big money and wealthy interests. What is of help in this bill? What, what does work? Because uh, it really, in the end, doesn't sound like it sounds like it's kind of watered down, and there's not a lot there. Well, no, I mean, if you think that there is a problem with voter ID, it is expanding that. It's allowing expats to vote. No, are there that many people who are not getting a chance to vote? I don't believe so. No, I don't think that really was a big problem that people made it out. It's probably be. more of a problem of convincing people to vote to vote than actually something obstacle stopping them from voting. Yes. Uh, and, you know, they're not doing anything about honesty in politics. In fact, they're narrowing the, uh, the restriction on making a false claim during an election. So they should be expanding it to, to prohibit false promises that bait voters. Expand with. on that. What do you mean, and, and why would they be doing that? Why are they narrowing it? Mm -hmm. To make it more enforceable, they felt it was too broad. Mm. Uh, it should be going the other way and saying, you can't mislead voters. And all it's doing But is then is that too broad to enforce? No, I, not at all. I mean, I mean the, there's all sorts of rules requiring corporate executives, taxpayers, welfare applicants uh, to tell the truth when they file information with the government. And why shouldn't politicians be required to tell the truth when they file information with voters? You know, this, it's a number one hot-button issue for voters. It's actually a number one turnoff for people not turning out to vote because even if you vote for a platform that you support, you don't get what you voted for because every party baits 
some voters with false promises, just like Trudeau baited people with the false promise to change the voting system. And it's really a fundamental issue of voter rights, and we need uh, a process to, first of all, prohibit it clearly. There is a rule that says you can't do this, but the Commissioner of Canada Elections refuses to enforce the rule. Democracy Watch just filed a complaint with that commissioner about Trudeau's broken promise on changing the voting system, a clearly broken promise, and the commissioner refuses to uh, to pursue the matter and, and investigate and, and rule on Prime Minister Trudeau's uh, violation. So we need that made as a stronger, more clear rule that the commissioner is required to enforce, and with a penalty of significant fines to discourage the rampant dishonesty that we see during elections. Uh, he said after the election, uh, obviously during the victory speech, that it would be the last uh, election fought that way. Why would he say that and then say that this was not of importance, enough importance to the people to, to, to make change? If not enough people are interested in this, why would you have it in your victory speech? Well, uh, Trudeau, when he was running for leadership of the uh, Liberal Party several years ago, said, I support changing to a ranked ballot system. And then this committee traveled across the country, heard from experts, and 80% of the people who made submissions said, no, change to a proportional representation system, not a ranked ballot system. So he didn't get the system he wanted, and so he's, he, it's like someone who brings the ball to play sports. He took his ball and ran home with it. How damaging, how damaging is that? I think it will or, be, or is it an issue that, you know, if you're going to make a promise, uh, break a promise, that's perhaps one to do it because it's not resonating with Canadians. Is that accurate or not? Um, well, then you, you shouldn't make the promise. I mean, you should think yeah. in advance, what am I going to do? People have a right to know what they're going to get when mm-hmm. they vote, the way they vote. And uh, I think it, 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 that the Liberals will lose 5% of the people who, who switched from the NDP and Greens to vote for them to, to, who want, those people also wanted to stop the Conservatives, and they went to the safe vote, which was the Liberals in the mm-hmm. center, uh, in part because of that feeling, well, uh, we're going to get a, the voting system we finally want. And he, I think the Liberals will lose that those 5% of overall voters in the next election as a result, because those 5%, that was a number one top issue for them. Change the voting system because they believe that they will get a lot of other things that they want if we have a different voting system that results in a different uh, set of MPs in Parliament. Uh, let's talk about collecting data. This obviously yeah. something that has resonated with uh, elections in other parts of the world, certainly most notably uh, with the United States. Um, talk about social media's role, how the parties are using it, and are they... Are they quick to stop using it that way? In other words, um, you know, no. whether you're talking about coming up with restrictions or guidelines or rules, regulations for this sort of thing, uh, is this too valuable a tool for them to do that? Yeah, it is um, so far. I mean, the Liberals are, we'll see whether the opposition parties push them on this. But um, the only restriction for social media companies is they're not allowed to knowingly take foreign uh, paid for ads, so ads paid for by a foreign business or some foreign entity or foreign, or or someone who's outside the country. And how easy is it from somebody who's outside the country to disguise that and make it look like it's a homegrown thing? Pretty easy. And also, what's the incentive for the companies to rat themselves out? Mm-hmm. I mean, they're making money from those ads. So mm-hmm. essentially, it's just self-regulation. 
And as we've seen in the past uh, year and a half, there's no, absolutely no reason to trust that Facebook will self-regulate in the public interest. They just go after the money. I mean, as, as uh, a senator in the U.S. asked them, how could you not tell that an ad paid for by Russian rubles might be something trying to undermine American democracy? <laughs> and they really? didn't care. They didn't even look at it. You know, oh, Russian rubles coming in, that's, that's money. Just, let's just keep the money coming in. So what should be required, and we have a petition, more than uh, 4,500 Canadians have signed it, calling for changes to require all these companies to report every ad, who runs the ad, how much they paid for it, where it's running, and, of course, the content of the ad to the election watchdog so that they can enforce the rules that prohibit false ads and ads that, that exceed spending limits and ads that are paid for by foreign entities. And you have to require these companies to do this and have huge penalties if they don't to actually get them to uh, do this properly. Also, in this bill, the Liberals uh, claim they're, they're going to ex uh, uh, set privacy standards for political parties. Actually, the parties will set them themselves. And uh, all they have to do is file it with Elections Canada, and there's no enforcement power for Elections Canada. So they're not applying the privacy laws that apply to the rest of government institutions and also to businesses, to political parties. That's just in their self-interest. So if this was for perhaps, uh, let's draw a parallel with TV advertising, I mean, how would that change what we saw on TV? Is it just that this is the Wild West, we don't realize the impact that it has? Well, the problem with the social media ads is you don't see them unless they're targeted at you. Right. And so Elections Canada, they can track TV ads and radio ads mm -hmm. and, and newspaper and pr other print ads because people hear them and see them. But only the people that a party wants to see a certain ad will see it. And they may not know that they, if they didn't like it, that they could report it to Elections Canada. And that's why the social media companies should be the ones required to report all the ads that are election-related uh, to the Elections Canada so that they can follow up and stop the ad if it's false paid for by a foreigner or exceeds the spending limit for a, a, uh, an interest group. Do you think Canadians are smart enough to figure this out now that it's been exposed to them? Do you think Canadians no. will look at this differently, or uh, is it anything you put on social media they're going to believe? No, not anything. If, if it's targeted towards them. No, not anything, but if, if, it, if it fits with the frame that you're already thinking about, a right. candidate or a party... You tend to believe it, and there's been a survey done showing 40% of Canadians have shared something that they thought was true. And it's not because it was uh, outrageous, it was because it was convincing. You know, I, sh I shared something uh, with, with some people, not actually sharing it, but I just sent it to them saying, this is interesting, this so-called uh, People magazine article in which Donald Trump said, if I ever run, I'll run as a Republican because they're all stupid and they're easy to fool. That was false. It was, but it was perfect. You know, you just. It wasn't. It wasn't an article from People Magazine. It, no, well, yeah. he never said it. Yeah, yeah. It was made up, and it was from 1978. So of yeah. course, you couldn't easily check. Right. And and. So how do you determine? Thing. How do you determine false ads? How do you? How do you figure well, that out? This is only going to stop a clearly false statement. But that would be a huge improvement because there are so many clearly false statements made by politicians. Uh, and political parties during election campaigns, including uh, uh, broken uh, promises that they are clearly know that they're going to break. And so uh, we just need this honesty in, in politics law in place and this disclosure system for secret 
online ads to ensure they're not fake or foreign or exceed the spending limits. And Ontario's parties didn't put in any in place any of these safeguards in the past uh, year, and you're going to see it. It's going to dominate, I believe, the uh, election in Ontario. There is a requirement to register if you do a paid ad, but if Elections Ontario doesn't know you're running the ad because it's only micro-targeted on Facebook to mm. a few people who receive it, there's no way they can track it and prevent it and track you down. You're also supposed to put on any ad who paid for the ad. But if you don't do it and it's a social online ad and you're using some burner credit card to, to buy it, how are you going to get tracked down? We, we saw this already with robocalls, right? Robocalls are the phone calling equivalent of these secret fake online election ads. And except that robocalls, except that with robocalls, we identify them, we understand what they are. Perhaps with social media, we don't. Is that what you're saying? Well, no, no, you, just, you don't identify. Uh, you're not, you have no idea whether someone yeah. call, calling in a robocall is telling the truth. If yeah. they make, if they spin it the right way, it can sound truthful, like those calls did back in the 2008 election, telling people to go and vote at a different location than their yeah. actual poll. How do you legislate politicians or political parties to tell the truth, or at least to the best of their ability, skewing it towards their viewpoint, their ideology? I mean, you know, obviously we have different opinions on things, but it's got to the point where we're changing facts now. Where do we draw the line? Or or you're making a clearly false promise. So you just say, uh, if you make a promise and you break it, uh, unless you can justify it, for example, if there's a sudden... A worldwide financial crisis, and and uh, we're going to the whole economy is going to go down unless you spend money, like happened. You know, the, the Harper Conservatives promised to slay the deficit in 2008, and then ended up spending a whole bunch of money because everyone agreed it was needed to keep our economy going because of the huge uh, financial fraud crisis caused by the U.S. banks and mortgage brokers. So that would be a justifiable excuse. Otherwise. Our proposal is the leader of the party who made the false promise or the false statement would pay a fine of one year's salary and the party would pay the equivalent fine. Wouldn't that be great? Parties would be discouraged from having misleaders instead of actual real leaders. Do you think we'll ever see this, Duff? Or have we gone too far? Can Uh, we put the toothpaste back in the tube? Ches Crosby. Especially with what's happening south of the border. Ches Crosby, who just won the leadership of the Progressive Conservative Party in Newfoundland and Labrador, has it in his platform. Hmm. Uh, first politician to do so, he's a lot of his platform is aimed at cleaning up some fundamental flaws with our system. So uh, we'll see whether they win the next election, the PCs, whether they include it in their election platform, and then whether it's enacted. It, you know, we have laws that prevent uh, corporate executives from lying to shareholders. Hmm. They don't work 100% of the time, but if you blatantly lie to shareholders and and the shareholder files a lawsuit, you're going to pay a penalty. Uh, Taxpayers have to pay, uh, tell the truth on the forms they fill out. Immigrants do, welfare applicants. And we have audits and we have enforcement systems and courts and penalties. Let's just do the same thing for politicians that they've done to us because they passed all the laws that require all those people to tell the truth. And 
uh, it will not work 100% of the time, but it will be a lot better than 0% of the time, which is what we have now. Duff Conacher has been with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch, adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa. Duff, thanks for the time and insight, as always. Much appreciated. Thank you. People can see much more at democracywatch.ca. Democracywatch.ca. Thanks, Duff. Thank you. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.